0: Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Wendy Mitchell. I'm a film journalist and festival consultant, and I'm proud to welcome you to the fourth and final Scotland session in par- BAFTA Scotland session in partnership with Screen Scotland. This is a series of online talks celebrating some of the nominees from the BAFTA Scotland Awards, which I think you all know are going to be held on Saturday, 20th of November. Can't wait to see who wins, but so many great nominees. So tonight's session is part of BAFTA's Learning, Inclusion and Talent Development Program, which you probably know already, aims to inspire industry practitioners, emerging talent, and the public looking at insights and issues in our industry. So if you'd like to catch up on any of the previous sessions, you can head to BAFTA Guru on YouTube the YouTube channel, or the BAFTA SoundCloud channel. So we've got three amazing speakers tonight, um, all BAFTA Scotland nominees, of course. Uh, We have Kiara Berry, who produced Run, directed by Scott Graham. She runs the production company Berry Crerar with Rosie Crerar. And some of Kiara's other credits include co-producing Nobody Has to Know by Bully Lanners, which just had its premiere in Toronto. And she's also been producing the forthcoming Girl by Adura Onashile. So welcome, Kiara. I'm Thank sure you. I mispronounced many of those names and I don't have a nice Scottish accent to even make it sound nice. Oh, sounds good, thanks. Uh, next we're joined by Rebecca Mark Lawson, who is producer of Polystyrene, I am a Cliché. Uh, Rebecca has produced many other films, including Irene's Ghost, uh, she was also an associate producer of In Another World and Almost Heaven, so we're so glad Rebecca is here, a star with a star in the background, lovely, and our third guest is Angus Lamont, who is here as one of the producers of Lembo. He has many feature credits, including 71. We've got that gorgeous 71 poster on his wall, Uh, the girl with all the gifts, donkey punch and co-producer of Mr. Jones. So I think we're gonna have a great conversation. I love talking to producers. You've always, you're some of the most unsung heroes of this business. You always have the best stories. You know where the bodies are buried. Um, Kira, let's start with you talking about Run. was this the first time you had worked with Scott? Can you just talk a little bit about how you started working with him on the on the film? Sure. Yeah, I'd known Scott for a
1: long time and been across his early short films. I worked for the producers who produced those films, David Smith, um, produced his early shorts and then went on to produce his first feature shell. Um, so we'd always kept in touch and always being friends, and then just when we set up our company in 2016. And um, Scott was already in development on run with producer Margaret Matheson uh, and they were looking for some Scottish producers. And yeah, Rosie and I got on board at that point. The script was at about maybe just third, start a third draft. And um, so we were sort of on for a, a year of maybe development and financing before we shot the film in 2018.
0: Well, so it's a few years ago now but i guess with pandemics yeah. and all kinds of things this is when we're celebrating it now uh, so, but yeah. if you can think back to maybe 2017 2018 how did the financing for the film come together did it have screen scotland money in it or how, how was it getting this film made
1: the film with well, the script was in development for a couple of years and um, as Scott's third feature. Uh, So he already had the support and development of Screen Scotland and I think BFI as well. Um, And then at that point of third draft, we then approached BBC Films and pitched the film to them. And they quite quickly agreed and came on board for production finance. Um, And yeah, that was us then with our three partners, BBC Film, Screen Scotland, and BFI.
0: Great. And where did the film shoot?
1: We shot in Scott's hometown. The director, Scott Graham, is from the northeast of Scotland. um, And he'd always... He actually had a short film called Born to Run. It was maybe his first short. And this film was kind of the one that he'd always been thinking about um, and had made a few films before, um, which was, yeah, going back to his hometown of Fraserburgh in the far northeast, which is a little fishing town, um, quite a big harbor on the North Sea. Um, and we shot the whole film up there in deepest, darkest winter, sort of March. Uh, yeah, on the edge of the North Sea. Yeah.
0: I don't imagine there's a huge filmmaking infrastructure in Fraserburgh. Um, no. <laughs> you know, what were the challenges of shooting there? I mean, there's challenges,
1: but I suppose at the same time, Scott was from there. So, in, and when he wrote the script, he wrote it with lots of those locations in mind. Um, You know, those roads around Fraserburgh, the, okay. a lot of film centres around the fish factory. um, Yeah, that bowling alley. I mean, in some ways, locations wise, it was kind of straightforward because Scott very much knew what he wanted. And obviously it's a small place Um, and yeah. And then everyone, the crew, we all, you know, went up there and stayed there for the five weeks of the shoot um, and kind of bedded down up there and uh, made it happen.
0: Um, And to be, maybe this is going down a little rabbit hole, but you know, with all the cars and boy racers and stuff, did you, was insurance an extra issue or was it kind of normal bonding and insurance like normal? think so. Yeah, seemed kind of
1: straightforward. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a distant memory now about how it happened. But um, <laughs> uh, the only thing I have a memory of is that one of the most distinctive scenes in the film is when the car is racing along the very dangerous kind of harbor side. Um, and, you know, a wave hits the car. We actually did that, you know, as a pickup, which was obviously the art department standing with buckets of water and um, that were very well-timed on a ladder. <laughs> um, and that was something that was picked up when we were in the edit and we realized we didn't have that kind of very dramatic moment that we needed. We then went back um, and did that as a pickup shoot, you know, uh, a, a month or two after a couple of months probably after we'd wrapped the principal photography.
0: Wow. And what's it, you know, after you finished the film and I know this is a few years ago now, but how mm-hmm. has the journey been getting it to audiences? Um, did that take a little while? And then did the pandemic mm-hmm. interfere with some of those plans? Yeah, I mean,
1: it has definitely been tough because we shot the film in 2018 and then we were going out to festivals in 2019. And then we did have a theatrical release. We were working with the UK distributor Verve mm-hmm. and then we were due to release, you know, the week after the first lockdown in March oh. 2020. Uh, so sad times in terms of reaching an audience in the theatre like we had always planned for that film to be. And uh, that's why it's, yeah, really nice to be acknowledged and nominated in the BAFTA Scotland Awards this little bit later, but um, yeah, because it didn't quite make it in the cinemas. And uh, I still hope to, you know, find an audience for it online.
0: Great. And like you said, it's great that BAFTA Scotland is recognizing it now. Um, Cara, we'll come back to you with some more questions, but let's move on to Rebecca to talk about polystyrene very different kind of project, no boy racers, from what I remember. Um, This is a music documentary, but a very personal one, because the co-writer and co-director was Celeste Bell, who was the daughter of the subject. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how the project, you know, sort of evolved, came together at the start? Was it Celeste's idea? Was it somebody else's? It was, um,
2: so I came on I, I was the second producer on it. So they'd already had another producer. So I didn't do the beginning sections of it. Um, i just made a film called Irene's Ghost, which we co-produced with Kira. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: and they came to the screening at LFF to talk to me because it was a, also quite a personal documentary. Um, and yeah, we chatted about it, and um, I wasn't that interested in making a band documentary. I don't think I'm very good at doing that, but I am quite good at teasing out the personal stories, and and that's what interests me as well. So, I we could see that there was a lot of potential there for doing that with um with the kind of mother and daughter relationship. So um so yeah, I started working on it, and um, Celeste had already been working with Paul. Paul was looking for some ideas and he was working with Zoe, who is the co-writer. And Zoe had said, oh, you should meet Celeste because we're writing a book. They were writing a book um, together, Celeste and Zoe. So some of it is uh, a kind of result of the research that comes from the book. um, And some of it is very new um, footage that's never been seen. So we we got gifted quite a lot of very lovely unseen archive of Polly when she was really, really young. Um, And we were lucky enough to be able to use that archive throughout. Mm. Um, So that was a major breakthrough as well. But yeah, they'd already shot a lot of stuff
0: when I came on board, which was a bit of a gift. (laughs) Yeah. How many years in total was the whole team working on this film?
2: I think they'd been working on it since 2017. so they launched a crowdfunder in 2017 and they raised a lot of money. Um, so they used that money to then to shoot the kind of main sections and to record all the um, all the interviews, which they only did um, audio only. so that was a decision right at the beginning before I came on board. Um, and that kind of really shaped the direction that we went in the edit. Um, so yeah, 2017 and then I started working on it late 2018. So yeah.
0: Yeah, and how much of a nightmare is it to work on a project like this that has a lot of archive that might need a lot of clearances, um, music rights, all this kind of, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that well, a layer I mean, of complication?
2: Archive is, I, is awful. <laughs> gives me nightmares and just thinking about it. I'm starting to sweat now just thinking about it. Um, but uh, we worked with some really amazing archive houses and we developed relationships with them. Um, and I think over over the two to three years that we were working with those houses, they we basically beat them down and beat them down and beat them down and cut seconds off and, you know, did everything that we could to try and bring the budget down. I mean, the original quotes for the archive were like 300,000, you know, which was completely out of our price range. But we finally, I think our whole archive budget was 80,000 in the end. Um, But it is, it's very difficult and you never know, the sand, it's always shifting sands, you know, You've got to. If you're working with BFI, you have to clear uh, worldwide in perpetuity, Mm. which is a really, really difficult thing to do on on a lot of archive, especially if it's something like the Sex Pistols or you know something that has great market value. Um, It's very difficult to get um, the people that own that archive to clear Mm. it in in perpetuity. Mm. So that was a huge challenge. But I had my co-producer Daria um helping re- me with the with the archive in terms of the music that was a bit of a gift because that was one of the reasons I did this project is because Celeste owned her mother's estate and so that was a big um a big pull to the project because she could basically I think our whole music budget was well, it was very low mm. for what it was you know Um, But Celeste has relationships with the record companies and got got us some incredible deals. Um, Yeah.
0: That's great. Um, Because, you know, we've all seen films about music and they don't have the rights to the right songs and it ruins the whole thing. And this, I mean, this documentary is just brilliant because I learned so much about polystyrene that I didn't know. You know, it's just a whole new story. Um, This is the second film you've made about a documentary maker's mother, I know. Um, Irene's <laughs> ghost did that as well. And I'm just wondering, yeah. you know, the, how, you know, for Celeste, this isn't just a film. This is her mother, this is her family. This is her mother's legacy. Um, You know, how, how do you sort of handle and help her through that process of making a film that's so personal?
2: I think that's part of the, the, the you have to have a lot of trust. Um, that you're holding that space for the filmmaker, for the, you know, for the participant, and an understanding of how difficult it is to go over that stuff again and again and again, especially when there's some dark things that happened. Um, I mean, you know, um, with Irene's ghost, there was a lot of unknown stuff and secrets that hadn't been told. And so, you know, we were making people relive that stuff. Um, and I think, yeah, with Celeste, I mean, she's a, pro, you know, she, she was amazing rewriting and rewriting and rewriting the voiceover and working, you know, as a co-director as well. So that it she was completely, it was relentless for her. But I think, yeah, she was supported by really good people in, you know, HODs, sound design and um, our editor, Zanna, who who was incredible. Um, who helped us really layer the structure and and get a lot of meaning into into the film, I think, and a lot of emotion.
0: Mm, it certainly does. Um, and maybe you can tell us about the sort of path to finding the audience. I think I saw it at Glasgow Film Festival online this year and I was just, yeah, blown away by it. Um, how, you know, where did you launch the film and how have people been able to see it and what's, what's the audience thought of it?
2: It seems to... It, So we had this whole thing, you know, we were making it in lockdown, and then it was like, do we wait until the cinemas open, or do we just get it out now? And because we had Sky on Sky Arts fund, Sky Arts were our first funder in. Hmm. So um, you know, we had a a kind of contract with them that they were going to screen it, and they screened it in early March. Um, So the only festivals we could get it in before it was screened in the UK was Glasgow. Glasgow is absolutely incredible festival, but it worked in terms of timings. Great. And I think, um, people, I mean, everybody saw it at Glasgow. I got so many emails. I mean, people that not even in the industry were watching stuff because everyone was so bored. Everybody mm. had seen everything and they were desperate for new content. Um, so Glasgow was incredible for us. Um, yeah, lots of people saw it there.
0: Yeah, and then it played on Sky quite soon. A week after, After. Yeah, a
2: week after, yeah. And then it went on to do South By and Hot Docs and all of the, it's done huge business in the US because she seems to have quite a lot of, a big following over there. So talking about finding an audience, um, we sold uh, worldwide rights and US rights to a company called Utopia who really have such a great sense of who's going to watch it and they're doing a a kind of it's a limited theatrical in some major in like four major towns in the U.S. in February and we've sold it to Showtime over there as well so um, and that's going to be I think there's a week apart so it's a week of theatrical and then it's and then and then going out on broadcast Um, but in the UK. Um, we worked with modern films who put it out virtually theatrically um, and I think they did really well. you know mm-hmm. we people were desperate to watch new things and we we have our kind of core um audience of people that were there mm-hmm. in back in the day, so the old punks um, and actually, we were funded by some of those people as well, you know we raised some Private finance from from some of the old punks. You've done well, um, so yeah, we, we have that kind of core audience, and then we just reach out to um, documentary filmmaking audience. And I think because it's a mother daughter relationship that you're exploring, then that takes it into another, you know, crossover.
0: Mm. Yeah, I feel like it's already had a big impact here in the UK, and that's great to hear about all the plans in the US as well. Thank you, Becky. Um, Angus Lamont has been very patient while I talk to the ladies first, but I would love to talk about Limbo. And we need to mention right off the bat, um, this is directed by Ben Sherrack. His partner in life and movies, Irune, is the other producer of this film. And she, I think, is about to have a baby. So that's why she's not on this Zoom. But Angus, we're really glad to have you here and congrats on the film. Thank you. Um, yeah, I would love to hear when, you know, because I think Ben and Arune have made a much smaller, tiny, like, micro-budget feature, Picadero, first. Yeah. And did they know they needed to bring in a sort of more experienced producer on a film this side? Is that how you got connected with them?
3: <clears throat> yeah, I think that that's pretty much what happened. They, um, they had made a couple of short films. They'd been at film school together. That's where they met film school in Edinburgh, and a uh, partnership, you know, creatively and emotionally um, and business-wise. Um, and they got quite a bit of success on the festival circuit with Picadero, which was very unusual uh, feature length drama, shot entirely in the Basque language. There's not many of those films. Oh. But uh, it did really well, and in terms of you know festival recognition, particularly of San Sebastian and then you know elsewhere in Europe, in that you know the, the world of uh, European indie filmmaking, it was a checked title. and they'd made that for literally nothing. But that film got brought into the attention of film four and BFI and people like that. And said, who are these people who haven't come through the normal system? Um, and we really like the movie. So we sh- we'd like to do a film with you. And so Ben was already writing his next script. And uh, that fitted in quite well with uh, the people who were, who were interested in developing his career. And that, you know, that was the kind of main partners that everyone else has talked about as well, which is, you know, at this stage in their career, they're going to the BFI, they're going to Trade Scotland, and they're going to Film4 or BBC, really. So I'm not sure whether they had pressure to bring someone else on or not. I just think they're smart enough to know that it would probably be useful to have somebody else, purely from the fact that there's a lot of work to do. (laughs) <laughs> what a lot of ground to cover so one person to do that it's a lot and I think possibly as well they never said this but possibly it would help to have you know a third spoke in the wheel especially if you're a couple and it might be good to be able to talk to someone else um because he was writing it as well and it's their company that was going to make it so it could have been a little bit of that but I also just like I say, I think we just thought it would be good to have someone else who could do some of the work, as simple as that. But also, you know, in terms of going to sales companies and post-production people for deals in London and all that, it probably, well, not probably, I had a bit more experience to that. So I was able to make speedier introductions and do the auditions in terms of, okay, well, if we've got something that it's kind of blue-chip, project in that way that it's got film for et cetera, then who's going to sell it? Um, lots of people were interested and we could go and do those meetings and we could do the same with the post-production people and all that. So we started to put it together that way once I was on board. And um, we pretty much thought that we took the approach that, you know, because you can make the film for anything. They could have made the film for nothing. Same as they did the first movie, or they could have made it for 50 million or any figure in between. But what we said was, look, all these people are interested in it, or these three main people are interested in it. What's the most money we can get out of each of them that allows them to work together smoothly and gets it done quickly? And we'll be able to do it for that. So we 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 pretty much took it from that approach and um, we knew we didn't want to hang around, everyone liked the script, so why not make it? So I met them, you know, early 2018 and, you know, towards the end of the year we shot the film.
0: Great, and you shot, I believe, in the Outer Hebrides, which again is not maybe known as being the easiest place to shoot, and I you definitely get that atmosphere on the the screen. Um, What were some of the logistical challenges of shooting there?
3: Have you ever been there? Not yet. No. It's miles away. Uh, it, you know, it literally, takes you, it literally takes you a day to drive to the ferry from Glasgow. And you've still got a half day on the ferry. So you're out, by the time you get there, you're out in the, the North Atlantic, you know, next stop, Canada. Um, so it, it, it does take a long time to get there. And even if you fly, there's only small planes that fly there. So they, they quite, quite quickly get filled up, the services that go out there, the flights that go out there, and also they're quite often cancelled because of the weather, as are the ferries. And potentially, you're going somewhere where you know you can't get people there and back. Just, that's, that's quite common, that the weather stops you from, from getting there and back. Um, so there's that. But also, do you really need to be on an actual island? making a story about an island if you're on the coastline looking at the sea for a movie audience you're on an island unless you've got a drone shot and you're looking down on the whole island you can see it's surrounded by sea then why not shoot it in the, on the coast you can drive there like Fraserburgh um, Fraserburgh could be a town on an island for all the audience knows you make it up and it was a fictional place anyway, it doesn't have to, it wasn't set in there to have was just set on an island anywhere. So um, one of the things we spent a lot of time doing was wrecking the coastline of Scotland, to try and find somewhere where we could be based, that would be, be practical, um, drivable from Glasgow, hopefully. Um, and we'd have the kind of scenery and environment, geography, topography that Ben was looking for the visual aspect of the story. And we could find some good places, but eventually he said, look, I wrote this story for North East, and were So please, can we do it there? And I sort of said, well, you, a lot of your money is going to go on the transport, and the hotels, and in fact, there aren't any hotels. It's going to go on the accommodation and all that. So if you're prepared to accept that, that the money is going on screen, not going on screen exactly, well, it is, but it isn't because you're spending England tales, but but he was kind of insistent, and I, once I went up there and had a look at it, I knew exactly what it meant, so we, we did a presentation, we prepared a presentation for the financiers, we went back to London, and we sat down with everyone in a big meeting room, and we had the wee overhead projector thing, and we showed them all the pictures of all the different places where you could do it. You could do it here, you could do it in Campbelltown, or I mean, you could do it out of Auburn, you could do it there. And then he showed them North East, he said, But that's where I want to do it. And, then, and eventually, and they all said, You know, it's kind of obvious. You've, if anyone has seen the film, it's a very unusual place, and it is a part of the story. It's sort of the visual, the, you know, the cinematic quality of the story is in, them, is in the geography in the location.
0: Wow, yeah, I think you can see that it's not shot just on a coast. I mean, maybe you can also feel that on the set. Um, Can you talk a little bit about where the film premiered and then how it found its audience and has the pandemic interrupted that?
3: Very much did interrupt it. Um, we, We always knew the film was going to be a festival title worked out as best as it could. We thought, you know, the way the conventional way to launch a film like that is to, to go to a festival with it and go to as big a festival as you can um, as prestigious a festival as you can and get as much attention as you can and all that's like the obvious way to do it but also Ben, in terms of developing his career, at the start of his film career, he was determined that if possible he wanted it to be in Cannes and uh, I I of course said that'll never happen because they don't take British films. So think of something else. He said, no, no. It's a bit like the location, actually. He kept saying in a really nice way, yeah, I understand that, but oh I go to can. Okay, but that's not gonna happen. So where do we go? Yeah, I think we should go to Cannes. So he kept, he had always always had that ambition in his head, and eventually, um, Lo and behold, it did actually work out. So we did get selected for Cannes and that was going to be our, our launch festival. But obviously that year, there was no Cannes. Um, so, but we did get the you know, the, the kudos of the, the laurels and the selection with a Cannes title. And it did what he, he wanted to do, which was to start his relationship with that festival as a filmmaker. And that, ex- that is now exists. Mm-hmm. And then, but in terms of someone actually, people actually being able to see it uh, uh, premiered in San Sebastian, which was kind of their home festival, really. They always wanted it, they'd always wanted it first. Mm-hmm. Venice wanted to take it as well. And we, um, we had to balance up between Cannes and Venice, but eventually there was no contest. So we took the Cannes, the Cannes thing and then screened in San Sebastian last year and uh, Toronto and then in London and Glasgow in the UK and lots of there's been dozens of other film festivals around the world.
0: And what about in cinemas? Has it come out in UK cinemas? I've sort of lost track.
3: Yeah it got a release uh it was bought for the UK by a company called Movie. so we were really pleased with that with a couple of offers for you know again you know the conventional Art house cinema distribution companies, and I'd kind of been down that road a few times before, and you know, I found it's somewhat unsatisfying. Outcome maybe are this new company who are a, you know a specialist platform to do um you know foreign language films and real art house titles, and
0: very cinephile, it's a real seal yeah. of approval that they
3: yeah but they're also moving it moving into production and you know they had a lot of films and they they were backing it can this year so they they were getting much more involved in production and they were getting much more involved in maybe doing theatrical release so just the right timing for them was a title like this that fitted their audience they felt so they wanted the film they made us a good offer but it wasn't just about the money it was about who they are and how they get connected to people because like I was saying with, with your conventional small art house release in the UK you feel like okay we've created all this publicity and great reviews and festivals and all that and then it's not on anywhere And no one can see it you know if you live anywhere outside of London you can't actually see the film even though Mark modes has reviewed it on a national radio station so I feel like, felt like movie were a good choice because timing wise, they they wanted to make it their first English language theatrical release in the UK. So they were prepared to put something behind it, put some muscle behind it, which they did do. Uh, So it got a good release. They were really happy with the theatrical release. And then it goes into their normal platform system. Um, Then Universal Focus bought it for the rest of the world apart from Australia. And, fo- and focus released it theatrically in the US in March.
0: Yeah, it's gotten. I, I've seen so many great reviews and, and attention for this film. So congratulations! It's, and I should say, I work for San Sebastian, so I'm very glad you didn't take that Venice plot. Yeah. Thank yeah, you for I doing have. the Cannes label and San Sebastian. Funny,
3: um, everyone's talking about there, You know, you, you do have to look at the calendar and you're wearing things up. And, we have discussions about what would be the best place and what do you want to do and all that. And, you know, people, there's a, there's a lot of politics between all the festivals that people don't understand. It's, it's, a, it's a bit strange.
0: It's a bit silly, some of it. And I work for festivals, but I can say that. Um, yeah, just one of the many things producers are juggling. And um, We're getting some great questions in, so thanks. I'm going to get to those in a second, but I want to ask just a another question or two. And one is with um, Kira. Can I come back and just ask you, um, you know, you and Rosie are two women starting a new company in Scotland. You know, what would you say are some of the the great things about being a producer in Scotland and setting up this new company and what might be the challenges? Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, I suppose, the great thing about working, setting up a company with another producer is that there's two of you, like Angus said, you know, uh, one producer on one job is, I mean, I don't know how you would do it. <laughs> there is a lot of work to do uh, and being able to split it by two is good. I mean, even three would be great. <laughs> um, uh, Scotland is great because obviously we're sort of a smaller country and we've got our own um, nice kind of screen agency, Screen Scotland, um, who, you know, are kind of, there and people can reach out to them and kind of feel present so it's you know easy to connect in where it has been um and yeah again got some great crews here some beautiful locations when we're in Glasgow you know we're not that far from uh getting into the the mountains and the hills um yeah and then, of course, we've got I guess when Rosie and I set up the company, we knew that obviously Scotland was has a reputation for its theater and um yeah, it's literature, and then we were we kind of felt like we wanted to start to you know that maybe cinema could do with um yeah, we wanted to see some new like contemporary stories coming from Scotland, which actually in the last few years, there have been some great films coming out of Scotland, so. Nice to be alongside my fellow filmmakers nominated in this year's BAFTA Scotland Awards.
0: Yeah, we can look at those nominees and see a great crop of films and many more coming up like Girl, um, which you've wrapped on that now, is that right?
1: Yeah, we just wrapped uh, three weeks ago on uh, a first feature with a writer director called Adura Chile And Adura is a writer and a theater writer and director. So this is her first screenplay. Uh, and, yeah, again, we made it with support of Screen Scotland, BBC Film, and BFI. Um, and, yeah, that was my first experience of shooting a film in the pandemic. So that was hard work.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Angus? Have you been able to shoot things during COVID or what's coming up for you?
3: It was in the start of COVID. It was towards the end of post-production on a, a big TV series. And uh, we are nearly finished, but we just didn't quite get finished. So all the the end of the post-production, the ADR and viewings and all that, that was all done remotely. That was quite difficult but doable. Um, And then just just back from shooting a film in Ireland and um, it was a bit more difficult but I mean we were, everyone cast and crew and everybody got tested three times a week. and you had to just be very careful, but I wasn't, I wasn't a massive crew and we never had any cases. So I didn't have the nightmare stories lots of people have of getting closed down and things, making insurance claims and we didn't have all that. So it's, it's a bit of a pain, Um, especially the at the time we started you had to still quarantine and you came from the UK and a lot of our actors are UK based and, you know, I had to quarantine when I went, and, and also it meant you couldn't go home. You couldn't go home because you had to quarantine at both ends, so you were stuck there for basically five months. Um, so all those things that everyone else has had, I don't think, it, it didn't it didn't obviously didn't stop people. Things still happen. We were lucky because we didn't have any of the actual disease.
0: Good. And what about you, Rebecca? I mean, some documentaries, especially archive stuff, you could keep working, but um, do you have projects that are sort of active right now?
2: Yeah, we've got, um, well, so when we went into lockdown, we were already in, we'd shot everything for Polly. So we just were, we just edited, which was great. Um, And then we were making uh, an animation as well. So again, you know, that can all be done from home and So that was really nice. So yeah, we've got a film out in festivals at the moment called Disease and Disorderly with Andrew Cotting and Eden Cotting. Um, So that was lovely. We made that over lockdown. Um, Yeah, we were really busy, but it was a challenge, I think, to not be with your collaborators for such a long time. Um, And doing post in lockdown, we we were in London uh, in the January when, Basically, we got told to go home <laughs> and they were going, why are you still here? We are like, we've got a film to make, we're not going. And, and they said, no, we're gonna shut the post house down and you'll have to do everything remotely. And that was a challenge. And I think it wasn't too bad doing the picture, but doing the sound mix um, remotely was a real challenge. It took a lot longer than um, than it would have done normally.
0: Yeah, I mean, producing is hard enough, much less with quarantines and things. Um, I'm going to turn over to some of these audience questions because they're really good. Um, Max is asking, how did you get into producing? Did you study? Did you go to film school? Did you study at university level? Did you learn on the job? So, Kira, let's ask you that. How did you break in?
1: I... Yeah, like I suppose I knew that I wanted to work in film and TV. I did a lot of drama when I was at school, and um, one time I had to be an extra in a kids' TV show that was shooting in Belfast in the uh, '90s. And for the first time, saw what happened at the other side of the camera, and I thought oh, I'd like to do that. <laughs> and then when I came to Scotland, I didn't study film; I studied languages, but I studied French cinema and Spanish cinema. And then kind of was leaning towards film and then I got um, yeah, when I left uni with my languages degree, <laughs> um, I um, was waitressing and then found out with Glasgow Media Access Centre, yeah, what used to be called a media access centre and still exists in Glasgow and started to as a trainee there where they were making a lot of short films um, and yeah, started to kind of learn on the job producing shorts and then. Eventually went on yeah to production managing line producing TV commercials, and then set up my own company. Yeah,
0: oh. mm-hmm. and what about you, Rebecca? Did you start with shorts?
2: Yeah, I did shorts, and I mean I had a similar. Um, there was a place in Sheffield called um, uh, Media Product. There was a media production place that you could go and do trainee. Um, Placements and stuff, and I was lucky enough to get on some big feature films as a runner. Um, so I did that. So I did features as well as shorts. So I was producing shorts and working on other people's projects. Um, I did a lot of music videos in the nineties and stuff. Um, and then I was worked. I was an ad for quite a while. Um, I did thirding. I worked. On, I worked on. So last of the summer wine gets shot here near, near here. So I worked on that for about eight seasons every summer for six weeks. <laughs> I think I was, a, I was um, a third AD on that. So I learned how to work with ferrets and tractors and things like that, and old, older actors. Um, so that was fun. Um, and then I worked for a, a finance company for a bit at, called EM media where I was working as an executive producer on shorts and first features and new talent. So that was great. And then I moved, I did seven years there and then I did seven years at a company called Life Size Pictures who did all of the shorts for the UK Film Council as it was then. So I did lots and lots and lots of shorts. And then I uh, set up Tyke films and started producing.
0: Amazing, um, Angus. I'm going to ask you a different question because we're getting some good ones in. Any top tips for pitching to financiers and investors? I know you've done this many times.
3: <clears throat> top tips, you know, it's, it's just like any <laughs> like any business, like any episode of Dragons Den you've ever seen. If you just have to be very well prepared, um, you have to be confident, but you know like any business to me the fundamentals are the same you have to pick the right people to work with uh, in terms of your partners and your collaborators um, and you've, you've you've got to me you've got to have a good interesting project it just because something can get made doesn't mean it should get made so it's always, and I think that's part of the job. We're all trying to do is always to find good material. Like everyone is, like like actors are, like directors are, like exec producers and financiers are. And you know, when you've got one, I think the people you're talking to can feel that from you. But there's no there's no top tip for finding that. That's your job as a producer. That's your job. You have to get you have to get good writers and directors to work with and. And, and, and develop good projects. That's
0: my tip. Yeah, only work with good, good projects <laughs> yeah. and then you don't yeah. have trouble pitching them.
3: Exactly, this, yeah. is, this is not hard. Uh,
0: there's a, another good question and I think I'm gonna spin it to Kara. Um, how do you deal with prickly agents, especially if you're starting at, you know, you're a young producer, maybe you've not done this before. How do you deal with agents?
1: I think if you're starting out, agents are always interested to like, you know, they're just humans like we are. <laughs> they want to connect with people and uh, yeah, you know, they're always up for being approached and they themselves are always on the lookout for new talent. You know, that's one of the things that they are always doing. And I suppose one of the secrets or one of the keys is always kill it with kindness. <laughs> Got to be nice to these people and keep friends. I mean, in the whole industry, you never know who Again, when a lot of key people move around and <clears throat> rotate jobs, you'll find as you've been in the industry for a while, like people are always popping up, agents become financiers, financiers become agents. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, don't lie to mm-hmm. people is always a good one. And yeah, be nice and polite at least.
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. if you like i said, if you've got good material, then people are gonna see that and engage with it and wanna get behind you even if you are just emerging and
3: starting out. I think that's right. Be honest, be realistic. You know, um, I think people do appreciate that. Mm-hmm. You can smell it if you're not.
0: Yeah, I, you know, people can, they will find out if you've lied to them at some point. So just, yeah. So, um, there's a good question from Samuel. And I think, why don't we go to Rebecca with this one? What have been some surprising challenges That you came across when you started out as a producer?
2: (laughs) I mean every film is different isn't it so and every film has its own set of unique challenges um that's what production is it's just a series of mistakes challenges problems so you know and every script is different so I think um I mean like Angus says if you've done your prep then you shouldn't, you know, you don't want any surprises, obviously. You always get surprises, I mean, especially at the moment. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, actors being hurt or ill or whatever is probably one of the biggest challenges that you can get on drama because you just can't carry on. Um, Most of the things you can replace or kind of patch it together, but, you know, it's mainly around the, the talent. I mean, challenges around budget you know working with very low budgets is really challenging um both you know on the team but also on you know what you what you get on screen so yeah i don't know if that answers the question i think there's i
0: think there's a new challenge every morning you wake up when you're a producer (laughs) um there's a really good question very topical here from matt um He's reading about the crew shortages in Scotland and the UK as a whole. Um, do you ever use crewing platforms to put a team together, or do you only work with crew you've already worked with? Angus, why don't we ask you that one?
3: Uh, going back to what I said earlier, you know, any business is founded on good recruitment, and you need to have a really good crew. So I, I would always be. I would normally be relying on the line producer to make sure, because it goes quite often where I've worked, I've been not in Scotland, I've been somewhere else, so I don't know who the good locals are. But it's absolutely 100% true that uh, crew is at premium at the moment. Uh, even in Ireland, doing that film in the summer, there was so much production. You know, We were hearing about a friend of mine was doing a show in. Um, in edinburgh tv series and uh drama and they had to get script supervisor from australia you literally can't get people even mixing and matching around the british isles let's say in ireland you can't you can't cruise certain projects so you you st- but you still have to try and find the best possible people you can because every role is so crucial to getting things right especially in some some projects you know you rely more on a designer if you've got sets getting built or you might rely more on you know, stunts or vfx if it's that type of film so uh you can't you can't allow there to be a weak link so how do you solve that and it you know it's, it's interesting because you know been around a long long time and now is the first time where i would say to, to people coming out of school around anything like that, Think of this as a proper career. You, you, there are actually jobs in film and TV in the media. You can get a career out of it. It's not a pipe dream. You don't have to be poor for 20 years and uh. then struggle through. You could actually find you know, a pathway that gets you to a job reasonably quickly and in a reasonable conventional way that's not just full of um, you know, risk and risk and uh, torturous times and all of that, you could actually get a proper job.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's a great silver lining to this crew shortage. I mean, there are so, there's a lot of people working in this industry more than ever. Yeah. I want to go back in time and train as a production accountant and I'd be rich,
2: Ruthie. but I can't,
0: I can't now, or I could now, but I'm <laughs> not- too late. You can still do yeah. it. Okay, that's true. It's never too late um another good question and here I'm gonna send this one to you um producer can also be a bit like a therapist <laughs> So somebody's asking how do you maintain a healthy working relationship between the director and the heads of department if things get tense on a set
1: mm. how do you manage that I mean yeah that's a tough job of producer <laughs> I think you know it's about finding the right people and um yeah, doing a lot of prep work. I mean, it finds months, it takes months to find, you know, the right HODs for a project. Well, in my experience in our last film, it did take a long time, you know, because you wanna make sure those relationships are key because they're so central and film is such a collaborative process. Yeah, needs to be right. I don't um, know.
0: Yeah, it's hard to know, I guess it's, because every personality conflict is going to be different but
1: yeah I guess you're
0: a listener the producer's listening to every side helping in the middle
1: exactly you're being very very diplomatic and yeah trying to hear everyone's uh where everyone's coming from and uh try and keep everybody gelled together and focused on the ultimate outcome which is yeah getting the film made and getting it in the can
3: yeah, so yeah I, just talk about it. Give the problems oxygen. Allow people to talk about them mm. and expose them. And don't try right. and hide. It's like we said earlier about you know other, another aspect about being honest. Be honest with people. If if there's an issue, there probably lots of people can see it. They just don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Sometimes the producer's got to be the person that can enable that conversation to happen. And yeah. The solution might be straightforward, quite straightforward, once people confront it. A lot of problems that occur because people just aren't being honest with themselves. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and it's difficult as well in COVID times when a lot of preps being done in Zoom and remotely and people talking to each other on the phone definitely helps when people are in the room and able to just, you know, talk it out and and spend that time together in person. Mm
0: -hmm. we have gotten a couple of really maybe similar questions I'm going to try to lump together. And it's about, you know, how you might take on a project. You know, would you ever take, a, you know, a, just a, from a writer without the director attached and help them attach a director? Somebody else is asking where and how do you find the directors you want to work with? Do they come to you? Are you out there scouting on YouTube? Uh, Rebecca, can we ask you where you find your projects and how?
2: Yeah, I mean, it takes me quite a while to work out whether I want to work with somebody or not usually it's usually been through another relationship or or you know I've worked with them in a in a different capacity um I think it takes me a a while to to warm to people and projects or just to be able to you know get into bed with them because um it's such an intense and long-term relationship um you want that relationship to to be right and wherever I've jumped in too soon, and we haven't known each other well enough. And we then maybe we didn't, you know, gel. Then things have gone wrong. So it takes me a while, and usually I like to work on things with somebody for a bit first before I kind of make a promise to produce something. Because I think you know, it's it's a it's a tough relationship, isn't it? With when, once you say you're going to produce something, you kind of have to do it. <laughs> so you've got to love the you've got to love the film and you've got to really get on with the people as well so that takes me a while to warm up to people yeah so what would you say get...
0: angus sorry to cut you off
3: yeah uh, i would it very much the same as rebecca it's, it's so important you know I'm, I'm always looking for you know good material first um, is it realistic that it can be made and should be made and most importantly, do you get on with the people? Do you get on with the writer? Do you get on with the director? It's because if you don't, it's not going to work. And you won't enjoy it, so why are you doing it?
0: Yeah. It's going to be a long few years if you don't like them. You know,
3: um, especially if you're in development. You know, I've got I've projects in development that are older than my children. And, they are, <laughs> and my children have finished university. So... <laughs> You know, it's it, things, and that's and that's with some of the same people. We just keep going with, and we do get on. You know, but um, if you didn't get on, you no, know, you no, know, horrendous.
0: Um, Kira, anything else to add from that, or where you know, where do you even meet new writers and directors? I mean. Um... It's
1: just good to kind of keep across things, which has probably been quite difficult in the pandemic, you know, in terms of like getting out to festivals, trying to watch short films, you know, trying to meet some new talent um, at like events like these and events that, yeah. So we're just trying to keep an eye out, I suppose. Uh, we have a younger assistant who works with us. So sometimes she's trying to read new material as well and do a bit of research uh, on our behalf, about who's out there. and and who might fit with us. Mm -hmm.
0: That's great, all good advice. Um, I'm afraid we're gonna have to wrap up on time. Um, It's been so enlightening, thank you so much. I said, I love talking to producers. You've reaffirmed that, you know, I've learned some things about your films and about your careers and I've learned I've gotta go to the Outer Hebrides Mm
2: -hmm. soon, I'll
0: call you. you. Yeah. I'll call you from the ferry. Uh, So a huge thank you to Kira, Rebecca and Angus for giving us all their time tonight, but also just sharing their knowledge and experience. And thank you to the audience who joined us and asked some really smart questions. Sorry, we didn't quite get to the last handful, but yeah, really great engaged audience and that, you know, makes it all worthwhile. So of course, just a reminder, you can watch the 2021 BAFTA Scotland Awards ceremony on November 20th. It's at 4.30 in the afternoon GMT on BAFTA Scotland's social channels. You can find it there. Uh, We really hope you've enjoyed the discussion. You can join a conversation on BAFTA Scotland social channels as well. So again, thanks to BAFTA Scotland. Thanks to Screen Scotland for tonight's talk. Good luck with your next productions. Hats off to you producers and congrats again on your nominations. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, bye. Thanks for
1: joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org